everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 30. This episode marks another step forward in Superman's ever-growing media empire, as the Superman newspaper strip expands to seven days a week with the addition of the Sunday version in full color. As the Sunday strips run a separate continuity or storyline than the version that runs Monday through Saturday, I will be covering the Sunday version independently from the daily version. So this episode we kick things off with a look at the very first storyline. Before we get into that though, I've got another iTunes review that I wanted to read. This one comes from William Purcell, and William wrote, I love this show, but I think you work better when you have a partner. You should ask Michael Kaiser to join you. A non-Superman fan would make for a good point-counterpoint banter. And thanks, William. I agree, the episodes where I've had guests have been generally stronger, so I'm really glad that you've enjoyed them. I mean, I've had, I've enjoyed having the guests on and plan to have more in the future, But um, no plans to bring on a permanent co-host, though I will be making an announcement sort of along those lines sometime uh, in the next half dozen episodes or so. Also, like I said, I do have plans for more guests down the road. In fact, I have one lined up already and ideas for more as soon as I can talk to the good folks and coordinate our schedules. Plus, any of the guests that I've had so far... Uh, Michael or Charlie Niemeyer or J. David Weeder are welcome back at any time, so if I can corral Michael back, I most certainly will. And now that he's uh, now that he's been called out, it'll be more dif- difficult for him to say no. So, if you hear that, Kaiser, the public demands that you return. And while we're on the subject, if there's anyone out there listening that would like to come on for an episode, feel free to drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and we will try to coordinate a time for you to come on. You know, even if you're not a hardcore Superman fan, if you're just experiencing these stories for the first time, don't let that stop you. Uh, like William said, sometimes it's good to get the perspective of a someone who's experiencing these for the first time who might have a little bit of a different outlook on them. So anyone that's interested, just feel free to drop me an email. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed. And to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies. And what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time. So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. 
okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. There isn't much by way of history or background pertaining only to the Sunday newspaper strip. I covered the background for the dailies back in episode 10, and given how quickly the daily strip took off, adding a Sunday version was very likely a, simply a no-brainer. In the introduction to Superman, the Sunday Classics, 1939-1943, former Superman writer Roger Stern detailed the hype that preceded the launch of the Sunday strip. He wrote, quote, The Washington Post, which ran the Daily Strip, started promoting the Sunday page three days before, on Thursday the 2nd, with a line of copy between each of their daily comic strips. The promotion continued in the comics pages on Friday and Saturday, and was capped off with a box announcement on the front page of the Saturday edition. He then goes on to say, quote, Think about that for a moment. Superman was a fictional comic strip character created by two young men from the Midwest. For half a decade, they'd hardly been able to get newspaper men to look at their work, much less print it, and now their creation was being promoted on the front page of the most prestigious newspaper published in the capital of the United States. And that's pretty amazing. You know, as we've talked about before, Siegel and Schuster originally envisioned Superman as a newspaper strip. Even though they'd hit success in the comic books, seeing Superman finally become that newspaper strip with the daily started in January, that had to give them a great deal of satisfaction. And all the more, the Sunday strip being promoted on the front page of one of the nation's largest newspapers, and although they didn't know it at the time, it was really only the beginning. As much as Superman's popularity grew in 1939, it really skyrocketed in 1940 and beyond. The Daily Strips and the Sunday Strips ran separate continuities, or stories, which is why, like I said, we'll be covering those separately from the dailies. I presume they were kept apart due to the fact that not all newspapers had a Sunday color section, so if comic strips were to run as one single seven-day narrative, many papers would miss a chapter every week. The first storyline from the Sunday newspaper strip was eight strips long and ran from November 5th to December 24th, 1939. As I mentioned last episode, that means it was running concurrently with the ninth storyline from the dailies. In relation to the comics, it started about a week after the release of Action Comics number 19, the first book J. David Weider and I looked at in episode 28, and ended just a few days before the release of Action Comics number 21, which will be the focus of next episode. I imagine these earliest Sunday stories might be a bit interesting, since even an eight-part storyline runs over two months. With Superman still evolving and being fleshed out at a rapid pace, it's entirely plausible that we could see changes happening right before our eyes over the course of one story from the Sundays. 
And there is an example of that in this story, in fact. Our story was written by Jerry Siegel and drawn by Joe Schuster, and only Joe Schuster from what I could tell, and that's unusual given that he's had someone else helping out with the inks for quite some time now. It was untitled at the time of original publication, of course, but when it was collected and reprinted, it was given the title 24 Hours to Run. The first strip of the story begins with a double panel, recapping, for those who might be unaware, the story of how, as Krypton exploded, a scientist placed his infant son in a rocket, sending it to Earth. It tells us Krypton's residents were highly evolved and capable of many mighty feats. We then get a panel recapping that, as the baby grew, he decided to use his abilities to aid mankind, and it shows us how Clark Kent and Superman are one and the same. Basically, it's just a very trimmed-down version of the origins that we've gotten to this point. Both of these panels are new art, but based off of previous art. The first panel is very similar to the opening splash of the two-page expanded origin from Superman number one, with the biggest difference being that the ship looks slightly different. The second panel is similar to the piece of artwork done before Superman was sold, which shows Superman and Clark Kent standing side by side and noting the two figures are one and the same. Interestingly, in this mini-recap of the origin, there is no mention of the difference in gravity between Krypton and Earth, which was first mentioned in Superman number 1, and then again in the middle of the seventh storyline from the dailies. Superman's powers here are credited only to Krypton being populated by a race of supermen. Also, there is no mention of the child being found by anyone, placed in an orphanage, or the Kents, or nothing. But on the other hand, it is only two, well, three panels, same as three, so they're just giving us the bare essentials. The caption in the second panel describes Clark as a meek Daily Star reporter. The Daily Planet was introduced in the Daily story covered last episode, but as this story began eight days before that one, it was still called the Daily Star in this initial strip. But keep that in mind when we get to later in the story. It's a bit interesting to me that they didn't start off with at least one complete strip retelling the origin. But, again, in this era they simply didn't put a lot of emphasis on the origin as something important. It was merely a means to an end, and in Superman's case, how he was able to do the things he does. They do eventually tell Superman's origin in one complete Sunday strip, sort of, and we'll talk more about that uh, at the end of the episode. So, caught up to speed on the ultra-basics of who Superman is, our story begins with a man walking down a deserted street in Metropolis. Suddenly, two cars full of thugs speed towards the man in a deadly collision. High overhead, Superman sees the situation and forcefully lands between the two cars, shattering the pavement. Grabbing one car, Superman lifts it above his head and with a mighty heave, slams it into the second car in a panel that reminds me a whole lot of the cover of Wiz Comics No. 2, which will be published in just a couple months, publishing time. With the cars no longer a threat, Superman grabs the man and leaps off. He deposits the very frightened man atop a hotel marquee several stories above street level, and calmly asks why the men in the cars tried to kill him. The man explains that his name is Mike Hensley, and that he owns a small logging operation. A larger outfit, run by Lem Marston, 
is trying to latch onto his property by hook or by crook, and Hensley believes Marston hired the gangsters to kill him. Hensley then goes on to say that someone stole his payroll, and he suspects Marston is behind that as well. Time is running out to, to complete a big contract that could either make or break him, and he's come to Metropolis and is trying, so far unsuccessfully, to secure a $5,000 loan in order that he can pay his men so that they will finish the job. As Superman climbs down from the marquee, he tells Hensley to meet him at Metropolis National Bank at 2 o'clock, and maybe his luck will change, before leaping off once more. Later, at 2 sharp, Hensley is at the bank manager's office, getting denied for yet another loan. Just as Hensley is thinking that he was an idiot for even trying, Superman leaps to the ledge and climbs in the window. Superman tells the bank manager he understands that Hensley wants to borrow, quote, a measly $5,000, which in 1939 would have been around $80,000, but that the bank manager isn't willing, and the manager answers that making a loan to a man in Hensley's financial situation would simply be bad business. Superman replies by picking up a safe, you know, one of those safes that weighs like a ton, and maybe several tons even, and could easily fit a full-grown man inside. He picks up the safe, one-handed overhead, and says, quote, Nice bank you've got here. It would be a pity if anything happened to it. <sighs> the bank manager doesn't believe Superman's threat, but after Hensley reassures him that, oh yes, he would indeed make good on it, the manager quickly changes his tune. Elsewhere in the bank, unbeknownst to Superman, Hensley, and the others, a teller places a call to Marston, alerting him that Hensley got the loan. But Marston is unworried, saying Hensley will never make it back to his camp alive. Later, Hensley drives home, happy to have received the money. Superman follows close behind, with suspicions that the man who threatened Hensley might not be finished. Sure enough, as Hensley winds along a mountain road, another gangster-filled auto heads right for him, slamming into the side of his car, forcing it off the road. As the car plunges off the cliff, Superman dives into action, snagging the car one-handed while holding onto the cliff with the other. Superman then flips the car, tossing it safely back onto the road. It's a really cool panel, even though it would not, you know, at all be possible for Superman to do what he did. First, he clearly grabs the car by the bumper, which, if you had super strength to grab a car that is speeding off a cliff by the bumper, you would really only succeed in ripping the bumper off the car. But then, Superman tosses the car back onto the road like a hookshot in basketball, somehow not completely breaking the car's frame. Oh, and all this, and Hensley remains safely inside the car throughout the whole ordeal, despite it being a convertible and cars not having seatbelts in 1939. But still, those nitpicks aside, it's a cool scene. So, Hensley thanks Superman for saving his life for the second time, and Superman bounds off. As Hensley returns to camp, he tells his foreman, Luke Conway, that he's able to pay the men. Conway slips away and calls Marston, telling him that Hensley returned to camp safely, and Marston tells him that he knows what to do. The men line up to get paid, and Hensley thinks how it's good to see his men back to work. However, Conway orders two of the men to take down a tree right in the range of the unsuspecting Hensley. And as the men go about their murderous work, Conway thinks doing away with Hensley should pay handsomely for him as well. The tree cracks and breaks and falls right at Hensley, who notices it too late to move. 
But suddenly, Superman charges onto the scene. Diving between Marston and the tree, Superman is able to use his mighty muscles to divert the fall of the tree. Marston is saved, but Superman is pinned underneath the tree. Marston orders his men to move the fallen timber, else Superman be crushed under its weight. But all of the men stand in surprise as Superman rises up, holding the fallen tree overhead. Marston thanks Superman for saving his life for the third time, and Superman leaps off, thinking there might, there might be more to this whole situation than a mere business rivalry. Clark returns to the offices of the Daily Planet. Note the Daily Planet, not the Daily Star, as it was in the first strip. This strip was published on December 5th, while the Daily Planet was first mentioned in the Daily Strip from November 13. So, as I mentioned, here we have an example of things changing midstream, since these Sunday storylines are published over such an extended period. So Clark goes back to the Daily Planet and tells his boss that he thinks there is a scoop at the Hensley Lumber Camp, and Taylor tells him to go after it. Later, he reaches the Marston camp and is at first confronted by a guard who tells him to leave. However, he soon meets Marston, who is much more welcoming when he finds out that Clark wants to interview him. Marston introduces Clark to his daughter, Nita. But Nita is also cold to Clark, saying that she doesn't like reporters and wants him to leave. Marston is just about to okay the interview, but is elbowed by one of the workers, and then tersely tells Clark to leave. Clark is suspicious about the whole situation, but leaves anyway. As he does, he sees Hensley's foreman Conway at Marston's camp, and thinks, This unexpected development calls for investigation by Superman. Not quite a, this looks like a job for Superman? but very close. Later in Marston's office, Conway, Marston, Nita, and the unnamed guard plot to disrupt Hensley's log train so that he won't be able to finish the job in time. The unnamed guard says that Agent R. Levin will be very pleased. Outside, Superman, who is in a tree, has overheard their plotting via his super hearing, and thinking that the camp's objectives are nothing but evil, says, there is a job here for me. Again, very close. So, Superman watches Conway leave and is ready to go into action. But before he can, the limb gives way and Superman falls out of the tree. He flips and lands safely on the ground, but then is inexplicably attacked by a bear. And it's every bit as random in the strip as it is with me describing it. I mean, they're in the woods, or a mountainy wooded area anyway, so a bear isn't out of place necessarily, but as far as the story goes, it kind of comes out of nowhere. But it goes away just as fast as it came, as Superman body slams the bear, and after just a two-panel diversion, we are back into the story. Back at Hensley's camp, Conway snickers as he tampers with the log train. Shortly, as the train heads down the mountain, rivets creak and metal grinds as the train shoots off the tracks. But suddenly, Superman makes a scene and is able to catch the train and safely place it back onto the tracks. As Hensley thanks him, Superman then grabs Conway and leaps off to teach him a lesson. With the crook in his arm, Superman springs up high into the air, the stratosphere, they say, and demands Conway talk. Conway relents, and the narration tells us, spreading the sides of his cape like wings to break his upward flight, Superman executes a neat backward somersault. Now, while Superman is not flying under his own power, it says he springs up and then uses his cape to break his momentum. This is the first time 
in these published stories from the newspapers or comic books that I can recall where the word flight has been used to describe Superman's aerial maneuvers. And given what we all know is coming very soon, that seemed extremely historically significant to me. Plus, earlier in the story, we got yet another example of Superman's running and leaping after the car, but we the reader only seeing Superman in midair. Again, he's not flying yet, but just a cursory look through the stories and you would be pretty hard-pressed to tell. So the stunt with his cape causes Superman's forward momentum to halt. Both he and Conway fall downward as Conway confesses that Marston is mixed up with some foreign spies and that that's all he knows. Returning to Marston's camp, Superman throws Conway at the crooked Timberman's feet, then leaps off to parts unknown. Later, Marston leads Conway and some of the other goons to Hensley's camp, where they set the trees on fire, intent on putting a permanent end to Hensley's work. An hour later, as the forest fire rages and Hensley's men battle fruitlessly to extinguish the flames, Superman finally makes the scene. Charging headfirst into the inferno, Superman furiously flails his arms, knocking over trees and churning up ground, finally clearing a path through the woods to prevent the flames from spreading. Then, summoning all the power in his mighty lungs, Superman inhales and blows the fire with hurricane ferocity, pushing the flames away and sending them onto Marston's camp. With Marston's camp on the verge of destruction, someone who I can only assume is the foreign agent mentioned by Conway tells Marston that he is no longer of use to them and says he is leaving. And for some reason, Nita, Marston's daughter, says that she's going with him. So, yeah. Anyway, later, back at Hensley's camp, gunshots ring out. At least one of Hensley's men is shot, and many more flee in terror, thinking the whole camp is jinxed. Hensley pleads with the men not to go, saying there is only 24 hours to fulfill the contract. Recognizing Hensley's newest plight, Superman races in for the save once more. Running through the forest, he uses his strength to uproot trees, and after an hour has cleared almost the entire area single-handed. Conway thinks they're licked, but Marston, being a typical villain who's too dumb to know better, thinks shooting Superman might be the solution. The bullets simply bounce off Superman's invulnerable hide like popcorn, but one does succeed in grazing Hensley in the arm. Finally deciding that it might be helpful to go after the people responsible for the whole ordeal, Superman surprises the would-be killers, placing them on either side of a fallen tree, then leaping into the air. After a precarious game of mid-air, high-altitude teeter-totter that leaves Marston and Conway crying for Mama, Superman deposits them at the local police station. Hensley thanks Superman for all he's done, and asks if he will accept their reward. But Superman leaps off, saying his only desire is to help the oppressed and see that the guilty pay for their crimes. His mission successfully complete, Superman races off to assume his disguise as Clark Kent reporter, ready for further adventures. Despite some occasional silliness in the writing and some recent hit-and-miss art-wise, the Daily Newspaper strip has been one great outing after another. I've said it over and over how I've been blown away by how great those stories have been. I was expecting the same here with the Sundays, maybe even more so because we're getting you know a bigger dose at one time, plus it's in full color. Unfortunately, while I don't hate this story, it was a letdown, and it really feels like we took a step backwards. It opens with a bang. I mean, 
right in the very first strip, we get Superman diving right into action, saving a man, slamming two cards together, and then leaping up to the top of a hotel's marquee. If you didn't know it by now, Superman is here. The benefit of not doing an origin strip at the beginning is that it allowed Siegel to get right down to business. If you came here expecting more of the same types of stories you read in Prince Valiant or The Shadow, Siegel wastes no time in demonstrating that you came to the wrong place. This ain't your daddy's adventure hero. We also saw Superman using his super breath in a story for the second time, the first being in Action Comics number 20, which was published in early December. The strip where he uses it here was from December 17th, so that would technically be the second use in a published story. But other than that, it went downhill in a hurry. I really hated the scene with Superman bullying the bank manager. The bank was guilty of nothing except protecting their own assets. When Superman threatens to trash the bank if they don't loan the money, it's really no better of a tactic than what criminals use. I don't mind seeing Superman push around criminals, but a champion of the oppressed shouldn't make a practice of oppressing others in order to aid the oppressed, you know? And what's worse, ultimately the money turned out to be completely unimportant because the men ran off the job and Superman cleared the woods himself. If Superman would have done that from minute one, it would have saved everyone a whole mess of trouble. Um, like I talked about, the fight with the bear is completely random. And I have no idea where Superman went after he dropped off Conway. He just throws him at Marston's feet and then disappears, leaving the criminals to go about their business, which, as we saw, included setting the woods on fire. And he clearly wasn't keeping an eye on them or even hanging out at Hensley's camp because it was an hour after the fire started before Superman showed up. A forest fire can take out a whole lot of ground in an hour. The spy stuff made no sense. It's mentioned briefly, but plays no role in the overall story. We're not even really told why Marston was in league with these spies or what the spies hoped to gain. Uh, the daughter is introduced and seems to be heavy in with the spies, but we're not told why or how or what it has to do with anything. It feels like one of those stories from the first year or so of Action Comics. Your basic corrupt businessman and occasional nonsense. It's disappointing because the comic books have been moving away from that type of story recently, and the dailies have all been so strong. It makes me wonder if this wasn't a leftover story that had been done earlier. It's about the same length as a comic book story, so if it was written for the comics, maybe it wasn't used for some reason? And I also wondered if this initial story wasn't done back in January when the dailies launched with the idea that Sundays would launch at the same time, but then was held. Uh, I don't know if there was a plan originally to launch the Sunday and daily strips at the same time, or if it was just wishful thinking maybe on Siegel and Schuster's part. The tone of the story feels, to me, like it more closely matches that that era than the recent ones we've looked at. It would also explain why the origin recap differs from what they established in Superman number one. Of course, the fact that they did it in two panels also explains that, but still. We've also got, seemingly, just Joe Schuster on art, which is something we've not seen since the early part of the year. 
And if you compare the art in this story with the art of the next Sunday story, there's a considerable difference in style. Other parts, though, like Superman using his super breath and the more dynamic aerial acrobatics make it feel like a more recent story, since Superman wasn't doing either of those things in the earliest stories. So, I don't know. And, it, and it's all just speculation, of course. I don't know for sure, and we may never know. But it just kind of makes you wonder. Speaking of art, I don't actually have any real complaints there. There are some coloring issues, but we can expect that. It does feel a lot different than what we've seen in the comics and newspaper strips, especially in the recent stories. It feels very... I think fine might be the, the best word. The lines aren't as bold as what we've seen, and part of that, though, comes from the, the reproduction. Overall, though, the art is okay. There's a sufficient uh, amount of detail in most panels. Superman looks great. He has his S on his chest in all but uh, just a couple panels, though the S on the cape comes and goes throughout like we've seen in a lot of stories. And I love the final panel of the first strip. Superman has leapt with Hensley to the top of the marquee, and we see sort of a bird's-eye view of him sitting on top of it. There is great body language as you see Superman kicked back in a very relaxed position, while Hensley looks much more tense. And you see a nice perspective shot looking down the building at the street below, and it just all looks very daunting. The first couple panels in the next strip continue that, as we get another idea of just how high up they are, and Superman looks very relaxed kneeling on the marquee, so great work on that. Everything as a whole, I, I didn't hate it, but it was just a letdown, and maybe that's my fault for, for building it up so much in my mind. But still, hopefully the next storyline from the Sunday strips will be a little bit better. Now, even though the strips in this storyline are the beginning of the serial, obviously not every newspaper that eventually ran the strip started at the beginning. The years of 1940 and 1941 saw a huge increase in the circulation of the strip, and while they recapped the origin here, and will do so in a much briefer form in the next storyline, they obviously couldn't recap it in every storyline going forward. So what they did is, they created a special pickup strip for newspapers who started running the strip after these initial couple storylines. According to the website The Speeding Bullet, which you can find at thespeedingbullet.com, the earliest documented appearance of the pickup strip was March 3, 1940. But given that it could have run, really, I suppose, as early as the end of this storyline, I thought it would be appropriate to go ahead and talk about it now. Plus, it recaps the origin of our hero. So, if you are listening to this and are somehow, you know, completely unaware of Superman's origin, here you go. Except, we're not really going to talk about it too in-depth, uh, because it really doesn't give us anything that we haven't seen before. And in fact, the art in the pickup strip is piecemealed from the very first Sunday strip, and colorized panels from various daily strips. The wording is tweaked to make it all flow, and the coloring is either added or different, but the line art itself is just a straight pickup. We start off with the same exact panel that opened the story we just covered. The wording is slightly different, but it tells us the same information. The next three panels are picked up directly from the final strip of the first storyline from the dailies, 
and they tell us how the child was found by a passing motorist and taken to an orphanage and then his many powers. Next up are two panels from the second storyline from the dailies. The first demonstrating how ants can lift several thousand times their body weight and the second showing Clark resolving to become a reporter so that he can get news and know how to help. The next panel again comes from the story we just covered and it shows that Superman and Clark are one and the same. And the final four panels all come from the second storyline from the dailies showing Superman rescuing Lois, tossing thugs from a car, and leaping through the air headfirst towards an airplane. And lastly, there's an ad-type panel showing Superman busting chains with his chest and telling us to follow Superman's startling adventures beginning next Sunday. So, it's a nice one-strip recap telling you everything you need to know about Superman and his origin. It was pretty smart, I think, piecing it together from existing art as well, uh, thus saving putting even more work on Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, and the Schuster Shop, all of whom were becoming more and more overworked at this point. And it's interesting that, again, there's no mention of the gravity thing. There's no mention of the Kents. In fact, they again just say it was a passing motorist, singular. There's no mention of any of the new details established in Superman number 1, and it comes from the fact that it was all put together from art done prior to the publication of Superman number one, but still it's just interesting what they do and don't carry forward as we go through more stories. Still, it's a nice catch-you-up-to-speed strip for new papers carrying the feature, and a nice artifact that surprisingly hasn't been lost to history. That website I mentioned, by the way, The Speeding Bullet, is a really great site. I don't believe I've mentioned it before on the show, but it is run by Jared Bond, and it contains sample strips and a lot of the basic information about the Superman Daily and Sunday strips, as well as the World's Greatest Superhero strip that started in 1978. I've added a link to it to the side rail at greatcrypton.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode as well, so be sure to check that out. The first storyline from the Sunday serial that we just covered, as well as the pickup strip, were both collected and reprinted in a volume from Kitchen Sink Press, the same company that reprinted the dailies. The one volume collects Sunday newspaper strips from 1939 through the middle of 1943. Reprint quality isn't quite on par with the three volumes of dailies, but a lot of that is just due to the fact that they were, you know, printed in color originally rather than black and white, and the color artwork is much more difficult to clean up for reproduction given the sources they have available. Still, they're nice reprints, given that they are 70-year-old stories originally published on cheap newsprint, and they're the only way to get the stories at the moment without tracking down very hard-to-find newspapers on microfilm. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero.
Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Thank you, everyone, for joining me this episode. Even though I wasn't too hot on the story, it's nice to have yet another component of the Golden Age Superman media empire added to the rotation. Next episode, we'll be looking back at the world of comics for a look at Superman's story from Action Comics number 21, which concludes the Golden Age adventures of a very familiar character. In the meantime, please stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes for this and all episodes, as well as other Superman and comic book related postings from time to time. At the site, you will also find a link to the show's RSS feed and the iTunes link, both of which can be used to subscribe to the show directly. Thank you again to William Purcell for the latest iTunes review. You're all encouraged to leave iTunes reviews, and I will be very thankful and appreciative if you can spare a few moments to do so. But at the website, you will also find a link to the show's Twitter and Facebook pages. Like the show on either site, and you will get an update whenever I post new shows or have other show-related news. If you have feedback or general comments or questions, please feel free to drop an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I like hearing from listeners, so be sure to send me your thoughts. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, and you can find that at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. As I mentioned last episode, Legends of the Batman is on hiatus, but the episodes are still up, and you should definitely go and check those out at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye!